Number 255 has been announced as a song of encouragement, and we certainly look forward to the opportunity to sing another song in praise and adoration to God. It would be fair to say that we're thankful that each of us have been blessed with the health and capability to assemble this morning. First day of the week is such a special time, and it truly is a great blessing indeed. As I stand before you today, our elders have just earlier had an announcement made about the returning to a regular schedule beginning a week from today. Uh, we're so thankful that things have eased at least a bit to make that kind of decision an appropriate one, and we look forward to being able to assemble and to gather in the ways and offer our heartfelt praise to God. I would urge all of us to continue to be wise and to be healthful and to live in such a way, again, to, to be good servants of the kind of health God has given us. I would be remiss if I didn't say at this point a bit of an apology. You're probably wondering why the wall hasn't appeared with the title of the lesson as well as the other features that go along with that PowerPoint presentation, and that fault is entirely mine. I prepared it and walked right off and forgot it. So I don't have it. So I just trust that I can deliver it in such a way that you could at least appreciate the things that would have appeared on that slide. And certainly if it's a benefit to you, I can perhaps bring it at a later time and share it with you in, in that fashion. But the title of the lesson, as you may have noted in the bulletin at least, is Lessons from an Unclean Spirit. And Greg just read for us from a moment ago in Mark chapter 1, so if you'd be turning to that chapter, we'll at least reflect on a few of those verses for just a moment this morning. Lessons from an unclean spirit. By way of introduction, I think we'd all readily agree that the life of Jesus Christ is by far the greatest life ever lived. When you and I detail the appreciation of the gospel accounts especially, we see this one who himself on more than one occasion said, If you've seen me, you have seen the Father, John 14, 9. Earlier in John 12, verse 25, he had even asserted that he spoke and came from God himself. And so as he presented the truth about God and the truth about God's will, we learn then in these gospel accounts some amazing things. An unclean spirit is going to be the spokesman for at least much of our lesson this morning. At first sight, that may appear odd. We're going to listen to what an unclean spirit has to say, and the answer is yes. But as we do that, we'll be reminded of several truths, truths which have never lapsed in anything other than the great power that's behind them. As usual, I think it's wise to at least think about the setting of the text, make sure we appreciate the placement of it, and then we'll launch into the observations. And so, for the next few moments, picture with me the setting. Let me again read Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 23. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. The book of Mark begins in a very abrupt fashion. 
unlike Matthew and Luke, where there is some information given about the genealogy of Jesus and the features of, let's say, His birth perhaps, Mark launches immediately into the full-grown Jesus who was ready to go about His work as the great ministering servant of God. You may notice early in chapter number 1 then of Mark, we find an immediate discussion where Jesus proceeds into the region of Galilee. May I draw your attention to verse number 16. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, so here is our master who had arrived to this northernmost district. The Sea of Galilee was there. And Jesus proceeds to call Peter and Andrew and James and John and to make them his disciples, his apostles, if you please. At that point, you'll notice that he comes to Capernaum in verse 21. Now, Capernaum was a seaport town. It was right on the Sea of Galilee, and in that place, a number of things in the Lord's ministry were ultimately to take place. But in this case, notice what the Master did. Verse 21, straightway he went into the into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he taught. So it was Saturday on that occasion. The master entered into the synagogue, and so there was a gathering of Jews, and he taught them. He didn't just highlight the Old Testament law. He taught about the blessedness of that new covenant that was to come, and he insisted that they appreciate the glory of this new way. But it was at that point that verse 22 says, "...they were astonished at his doctrine." What he taught them was not the rank-and-file typical issues that they had heard. That verse goes on to say, he taught them with authority. The Lord didn't just say, you've heard that it was said, or the rabbis have said this. He didn't just say to them that you have been schooled under the tradition of this. He pointed directly to the will and law of God. And it was at that point that verse 23 says, in that grouping, in that gathering, there was a man with an unclean spirit. That to you and me perhaps would appear unusual. Gathered in that assembly was somebody who was possessed with a demon. Now to you and I today, we're a bit unfamiliar with this. That doesn't happen, but it did then. I wonder how the Master reacted wouldn't it be easy for that kind of occurrence to send the gathering into chaos? To send it into perhaps what it ought not be? And yet Jesus kept full control of it and ultimately used that matter to draw great numbers of people to the message of truth. We've just read the particular passage twice, but I stopped reading before I got to verse 27. Now let's go ahead and put that in place. And they were all amazed... After the Lord's dealings with the man having the unclean spirit, it says they were all amazed in so much that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. The Lord, as he dealt with this man with the unclean spirit, it was evident to all that were present that he had absolute and full control over the fullness of the behavior of that spirit. With those thoughts mentioned and made, let's now do a much greater element in consideration of what were the lessons you and I might learn from this. 
What did the unclean spirit say? Well, the first thing to notice, it seems to me, is an observation about the mere existence of these unclean spirits. I mentioned a moment ago, we are totally unfamiliar with this. But yet as we read through the gospel accounts, especially, it frequently occurred. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be possessed of an unclean spirit? First of all, you'll notice the King James translation frequently uses the word devil, an unclean devil. And so it immediately draws their attention to the power behind this kind of behavior. We're speaking, you see, about none other than the emissaries of hell. Those ambassadors, the angels, if you please, of the devil. And yet we find that these demons could inhabit a body. They could come into a person's physical consideration. And when they did, they often could result in extreme behavior. Think about just a few of the passages. There was more than one occasion when the possession of an unclean spirit led to blindness. The person was unable to see. Matthew chapter 12. On another occasion, it led to muteness. The person couldn't talk. Although the person had other other sensibilities in life, the person had been rendered incapable of speech. Isn't that interesting? There was another occasion when possession by an unclean spirit led to convulsions. You may recall that the father would say, speaking about his son, that when the spirit tears him, he foams at the mouth and often throws him into the fire or the water. Can you imagine the kind of life that would come to pass if one were possessed with a demon like this? To think about some of the other observations, pause to note this with me. We have record in the Holy Word of God that there were times that men were possessed with spirits. There were times women were possessed with them. Do you remember Mary Magdalene in Luke 8 verse 3? The Lord had cast out of her an unclean spirit. She, as a woman, had been possessed with one. Sometimes even children were possessed by them. It would thus appear that these unclean spirits could forcibly enter into an individual without that person's choosing it to happen, but enter in and inhabit or possess that person's body and do so against that person's will. That's somewhat of a frightening thing to imagine, isn't it? I would offer at this point that you and I should appreciate powerfully this observation. When you and I read about these in the New Testament, may I ask, have you ever read about it in the Old Testament? In the books of Genesis through Malachi, do we encounter those passages in which we see that demon possession took place? The answer appears to be no. No examples of which I'm aware anywhere in the Old Testament of this forcible possession by demons. And yet, as the New Testament opens, it's all over the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and sometimes even Acts. Something dramatic had occurred for which that behavior did not occur in the Old Testament, but it did during that time when our Master was here. There are some who would ask the question, so is demon possession like epilepsy? Is it like paranoia? 
Sometimes, as you read articles, there are those who make those insinuations, sometimes even those direct assertions. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, and let's at least answer that question by using the very wording of the Word of God. In Matthew chapter 4, verse number 23 and 24, we have at least a statement that informs us mightily about demon possession. It says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And His fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto Him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and He healed them. A rather extensive list is presented, but might we take note, you'll notice that possession by a demon is separate and distinct from lunatic. It is not the same as epilepsy. It is not the same as paranoia. This, as I mentioned earlier, was an actual instance in which the power of demonic matter could forcibly enter into a person and exert a measure of control over them. I suppose that's frightening to all of us, and well, it should be. A number of questions perhaps immediately could be asked. Why did God permit this to happen? What message in it was there for those of that day and even for you and for me today? Not only that, what might be some lasting observations that can be very encouraging and helpful to us? The first answer appears rather obviously to be this. We each understand the devil is a powerful being. He is strong. Three times in the gospel accounts, he is likened unto and at times directly called the strong man. He is able to wield tremendous influence and power and like a roaring lion, even to this day he walks about seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5 verse 8. And legions there are on this earth who are fully beneath his control. They have given over control of their life to Him. They engage in those things that He encourages rather than what the Master encourages. They follow that which the devil teaches rather than what Christ teaches. And in many instances, as all of that takes place, we need to be reminded, who is the stronger here? Doesn't it appear as one looks at the situation of our world that the devil is powerful and perhaps also he is the God of this world, to borrow the wording, you see, of 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. Without doubt, He is strong and He's powerful. He's mighty. But may you and I never, ever forget, there is that is mightier than He. The fact of demon possession was the powerful means by which the superiority of Jesus Christ and His truth was to be seen. Jesus could cast them out at will. He didn't have to ask their permission. He didn't have to ask in any way for the authority to do this. Could I direct you again to verse number 25? Jesus rebuked this unclean spirit. You be quiet. You hold your peace. 
the Lord had absolute authority and power over them. People of that day knew the source of these things. They were demonic in character. And yet when Jesus could so readily cast them out, when He could so readily give them commands, when He could so readily cause them to do what they otherwise would not, that was an illustration to the people of that day. Jesus is more powerful than they are. The power that is with Him is greater than the power that is with them. And that truth is what drew so many to Jesus Christ. They knew in the midst of a world where there was such a thing as demon possession then, there was a power greater than them. Is it any wonder the popularity of Jesus? Isn't it true that if you lived anywhere perhaps even hundreds of miles away, and you heard about a man that could cast out demons, wouldn't you take your brother, your sister, your child, your parent, whoever had this malady? Any of us would. The power of the Christ. Demon possession, as readily as it occurred then, is something that then we can put in mind now in regard to the following. Demon possession does not occur today. As readily as we've seen it then, the reason that God permitted it was to illustrate and to demonstrate the power of the Christ and the authenticated character of His gospel message. But when our Master ascended back to heaven and His apostles, they of course soon died as well. The power resident to take care of this was not going to be evident like it was then. There is no demon possession today. The Old Testament had foretold that such would in fact be the case. Return with me to Zechariah 13 for just a moment. Near the end of the book of Zechariah, the book has 14 chapters, but we will pause at chapter 13. And we find in verse 2 of that chapter the following interesting prophecy. As God had revealed to the ancient prophet Zechariah, the following words are to be found. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. The prophet Zechariah thus had looked down the stream of time until that time when the Christ would come. And he said, there's coming a day when all the prophets that have been known likened unto Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the others, there won't be anybody like that anymore. And there also won't be any unclean spirits either. Now maybe that reminds us today that there certainly can be individuals whose behavior is unusual, whose behavior is very strange, but it is not the same as demon possession. Demon possession, as we've already learned, was a very, very powerful and mighty thing. But Jesus was powerful still. As far as the first lesson then, the existence of demon possession, it brings us to observation number two. Would you return with me to Mark chapter 1 and let's look at what the demon said. Picture the scene. Here was the master. He had come into this synagogue, the here in Capernaum, and in the audience there was a man with an unclean spirit. I hope you'll notice in verse 24 who spoke first. The unclean spirit said, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, 
thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. We do not know how many were gathered at that synagogue on this particular occasion. Perhaps a large number, but however many it was, in the group was a man that was possessed with an unclean spirit. And you'll notice in verse 23, he cried out. But then in verse 24, he addressed Jesus as the speaker. This unclean spirit, who again was inhabiting this man, singled out Jesus, and he addressed him and said, Let us alone. I would invite you to note the word us is in italics. The translators have supplied that. It's not in the original. Let alone the unclean spirit cried, What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? This unclean spirit not only recognized Jesus, he identified him. You're Jesus of Nazareth. You're Jesus of Nazareth. Isn't it fascinating that that seems to have been a rather common matter among the unclean spirits? As you hold your finger there, look back to Matthew chapter 8, another, a different example. In Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse number 28, there's that rather well-known record again of where Jesus encountered a man with some unclean spirits. And I'll start reading in verse 29. And behold, they, that's the unclean spirits, cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Jesus, the Son of God. I would submit to you the unclean spirits had, had a keener sense of the Lord's identity than most people on earth. There were many people doubting who Jesus was. The unclean spirits didn't doubt it. They knew exactly who He was. Did you notice the two different descriptions? Jesus of Nazareth, thou Son of God. They knew He was the Messiah. They knew He was the anointed Son of God. Our world would be a whole lot better place if the human family would confess the same thing the unclean spirits did. Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. As you ponder for a moment the degree of knowledge of these unclean spirits, they had a very clear sense of who Jesus was. Among all the people on earth, He was different. He was unique. He was the one from heaven. And they acknowledged it. Did you know what else the unclean spirit said in verse 24? What have we to do with thee? We are the ones who, in essence, manifest the power of hell. You manifest the power of heaven. There is no concord between you and us. And today, isn't that again a powerful observation? Where Christ is, sin cannot be. The two simply do not match. That's what Paul affirmed in 2 Corinthians 6, isn't it? In verses 15 to 17, What concord hath light with darkness? What concord hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What concord hath the sons of Belial with those who are of God? And so doesn't that encourage your life and mine to be a life of purity and a life of godliness? and a life of righteousness. 
even the unclean spirits understood that what they were about is not what Christ was about. The two are just not the same. Going back to verse 24, I know thee who thou art. In many ways, that's a fascinating expression. Here was an angel of the devil speaking to Jesus and saying, I know who you are. Now, you and I learn in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and following, that Jesus had created. He'd been the executor of the creation. Everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth had been made by Him. Well, that would have included every one of the angels that at one time were faithful, but later they chose to be unfaithful. No wonder they knew Him. No wonder they identified Him. And no wonder they acknowledged Him. Perhaps it is with that in mind, observation number three. Not only did they identify and acknowledge Him, but notice what else the unclean spirit said. Art thou come to destroy us? The unclean spirits not only recognized the Master, but they also had a very keen awareness of something else. He had the power, you see, to, in their own words, destroy. I just read a moment ago from Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, and there the word was a bit different. Would you revisit that one and allow me to emphasize it again? Matthew chapter 8, verse number 29. Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? These demons these angels of the devil, if you please, they already knew what their fate was. They already knew that what their lot is going to be is torment. And here they said, are you coming to do it before the time? Are you coming to begin the torment of us now? They were already a bit fearful. Is it any wonder in James 2.19 it says, the devils believe and tremble. They're quaking in their proverbial boots, knowing what's coming. When that day of judgment arrives, they already know what their sentence is going to be. Art thou come to torment us before the time? The whole thought of demon possession leads us to close, at least for the last little bit of our sermon today, by reflecting on the power of Jesus as it specifically relates to them. Art thou come to torment us? Jesus has the authority, the power. Not only on earth could He command them. When the Lord commanded them to come out of somebody, they did. When He commanded them to hold their peace, they did. When He commanded them in some other regard, they did. You may recall on another occasion, there was a herd of swine. And you may remember that... They asked, can we go into the swine? The Lord gave permission, and they did. But had He forbidden it, they would not have been able to. It's an interesting thing to comment then on the power of Jesus Christ, at least in this connection. He has all power on heaven and in earth. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus Himself, after His resurrection, did He not say, All power. The word literally means all authority hath been given to me in heaven 
and in earth. He has all of it. That means when it came to the unclean spirits, or for that matter, anything else on earth, the Master could ultimately and fully control it. You might recall with me that scene in Mark chapter 4, a bit later in this book, where there was a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee, and the Master merely gave the word, and it was calmed instantly. He has the power to calm the matters of your life or mine. And may I say that He has the power fully to control the matters of these unclean spirits. Let's make a personal application to ourselves. Let's not merely leave this in an element in abstraction. It's true He could control the unclean spirits, but let's face it, they are the angels of the devil. Jesus can control anything that may occur in your life or mine that may be connected to the work of the devil. That's the degree of His power. And there's never a temptation that you and I can face. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But what there is guaranteed a way of escape, the devil can never thus bring upon you or me any circumstance greater than what we are able to appreciate a means and a way of escape. Now, we all know, I'm sure, if the devil could do it, he would. But his power has been restricted. He cannot bring upon any of us more than what we're able to bear and what we're able to find that means of escape. The issues then of my life are yours, whatever they might be, whatever temptations may appear, whatever difficulties, struggles, and problems may be the case. There's always a means by which we can remain faithful to the Lord and remain connected strongly to Him. Right now, the devil, as we've noted earlier, walks about like a roaring lion. And make no mistake, the degree of those angels following him, they can't possess us like they could back then. But don't you know they're still working feverishly, attempting to bring into your line of sight and mind those things that will deter us from faithful service. Because you see, God's prized possession are people. That was the chief of His creation. And the more people the devil can take to hell with him, the more disappointed God will be. And the greater will be the impact upon what was initially the plan of God to save all men. But now, but now this power seen in the work of the devil. We understand that that power is such that the New Testament is clear. These demons know their fate. Would you turn with me to 2 Peter 2 verse 4? And look at yet another passage that describes the nature of what they already know. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Piece together a few parts of that with me. The word hell that appears there is not Gehenna. It is another word, Tartarus, referring to the Hadean realm. Those angels of the devil were cast down, and they are currently in Hades, but they're not in a pleasant part of Hades. They're not in Abraham's bosom. They're in this place of torment, but yet they're awaiting a grander and greater torment when on that day of judgment, Revelation 20 verse 10 tells us, the devil and all those with him are going to be cast into Gehenna. 
cast into hell. They already know it. Oh, if you and I in wisdom could appreciate then and never allow ourselves to give the devil power that will lead us to our doom. May we remain loyal, close, and faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means in the various walks of our life each day, and certainly as we give thought to the greatness of His authority. Maybe we can use that to close our lesson this morning. I've highlighted throughout many references to the authority of Christ, absolute references. And these unclean spirits respected that authority. They did whatever Jesus said, and they did it when He said it. You and I would do well to do that too. Whatever He saith unto you, do it. Didn't Jesus' mother say that in John 2, verses 5 and 6? Whatever He says to you, do it. Why do we sometimes wait? The Bible tells you and I to do certain things because Jesus knows it's what's best for us, and He knows that would work in our best interest, but yet we on our own thinking say, I believe I'll wait. Now's just not the best time. I think I'll wait for a more convenient season. Agrippa tried that. You might recall that when Paul preached so hardly about the nature of response and the nature of personal responsibility, he said, Go thy way. I'll call for you in a more convenient season. We don't know the convenient season ever came. You know, if we wait long enough, we're guaranteed it'll never come. We'll leave this earth in death, and we'll have to face God in judgment, unprepared. I'd submit to you, we learn a lot from these unclean spirits. First of all, it existed then as a reminder of the great power of Jesus Christ. He could overthrow them, cast them out at will, and there was nothing they could do about it. And that brought great dividends of teaching and admonition to the people of that day. When they saw what the Lord could do, no wonder His message became so popular among the common people. But we've also learned this morning about their identity. Jesus didn't have to introduce Himself to them. Isn't that interesting? They knew exactly who He was as the Messiah, as Jesus of Nazareth. We would do well to not only acknowledge that, but certainly recognize the power within it. In many ways, that's partly what goes into the confession that's uttered right before a person's baptized. We've witnessed it. We've seen it. We've heard it. A preacher or some other officiate will say, Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, with all your heart? And the person, with perhaps a shaky voice, but not because of fear, but because of the emotion of the moment. The person will say, yes, I do. And yet, in a way, that's the same kind of a confession that Peter had uttered in Matthew 16, 18. And in some ways, it at least reminds us of what the unclean spirits knew. But as we close our lesson, note this. Today, when a person makes that confession and then is immersed, that person is forgiven. And that person is then right with God. Those unclean spirits cannot do that. They can't be baptized if they wanted to. They can't confess the name of Christ in that way even if they want to. The gospel plan of salvation was never designed for them. 
Hebrews 2.16 tells us they can't obey the gospel. Aren't you thankful you can? Aren't we all thankful we can respond to that power of Christ and we can acknowledge His identity and we can hold in ourselves the great hope of heaven? There might be someone in this assembly today who upon the recognition of what the unclean spirit cried out, maybe that has touched your life. Maybe as a wayward child of God, you've lost sense of the power of Christ. You've begun to recognize the great power of the devil, but you need to have a change of attitude and a change of mind. Why don't you come back to your first love today? We'd be delighted to pray for you and to pray with you. And as we do all of that, of course, we have the assurance of Scripture that you will be forgiven upon your confession and repentance. But if there's someone here who's never become a Christian, never obeyed the gospel initially, don't you realize that the devil is currently shaking because he's afraid you're going to? He's afraid he's going to lose one of his servants because he knows that the power of the Christ is greater than he. And today, if you need to respond to that gospel call of invitation, won't you believe in Christ? Absolutely. Repent of your sins, confess the greatness of His name, and then be immersed, baptized in water for the remission of sins. If we could help you do that today, it'd be our delight and joy as we extend the invitation at this moment. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?